I'm going to start with a story that kind of is applicable to our teaching today. So bear with me. The story is told that on a snowy January, January day at the turn of the century, a crowded passenger train steamed its way from Chicago to St. Louis. And at one of the many stops along the way, one of those travelers observed a young mother board the train with two small children in tow. Please, sir, I need to get off at the city of Beaumont, he heard her say to the conductor. And the passenger, taking note of the overworked conductor, approached the young woman and said, the conductor is busy. He, he no doubt, will forget where you want to get off. I've been on this train a hundred times. I'll make sure you get off at the right place. Several hour, hours later, as the train decelerated, the man made his way to the young mother and said, this is the spot. Here's where you want to get off. Thanking him, she gathered her children and went out into the blizzard. Half an hour passed before the connector or conductor called out, where is the woman who wants to get off at Beaumont? It's coming up in five minutes. Horrified at what he heard, the man said, what, what do you mean? Beaumont was the last stop we made. No, sir, replied the conductor. The last stop we made was to pick up water at a tank in the middle of nowhere. And both men instantly realized that the woman and the children had been sent off the train, most likely to their deaths. Now, that story is kind of heavy, but it's very applicable to what we're going to talk about today. Because just like the accuracy of the information given to the young woman had serious implications for her life and for the lives of her children, in much the same way, the accuracy of the information that we pass on to people from God's word can have serious implications for their lives. Would you agree? I would say especially regarding salvation, right? The doctrines of salvation that we know in the word of God, they can have life or death implications in the life of people. So we want to most assuredly pass those on to people accurately. And as such, we want to be those that first know God's word ourselves and then those that are careful to accurately share it with people so as to never lead them astray. And what we're going to see in Acts 15 today are some people come to the church in Antioch, people that maybe meant well, but were inaccurately describing the good news of Jesus Christ or the gospel as it related to these many new Gentile believers that were getting saved and what was required of them to truly be saved. In this section of scripture, Acts is a great reminder to us. See what I did there? All of Acts is a great reminder to us, but it acts as a great reminder to us. Man, you guys are tough today. <laughs> that we're saved by God's grace through faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ, and that we need to be careful not to burden ourselves with additional requirements that God never asks of, of us to ensure our right standing with him, all right? Now, I'm not saying that we don't want to strive to live rightly for God, but here's where we go wrong, is somehow we associate that right living with how well God is pleased with us. 
And that can leave us in a place of being discouraged because I don't know about you, I struggle with white right living. I mean, the Lord gives me victory over time, but there, I'm a work in progress. And here's the thing, I couldn't be any more right in God's eyes than I am right now because it's not based on anything I've done or anything I will ever do. It's completely based on what Jesus has done for me. So I don't want to mix that up with right living. Right living that is, comes out of something that after you're saved, after you realize how much God loves you, after you realize how good he is and he only has good plans for you, you look to him to help you be changed from the inside out. Amen? And this section we're going to look at also reminds us to be careful not to make the same mistake of putting unnecessary requirements or expectations on people, other people, that God himself doesn't put on them, a.k.a. what sometimes we refer to as legalism. You have to do this. You have to do that. If you're not like this, then you're not truly living for the Lord. or You're not truly saved. We, we don't want to be in that habit. So we last finished up Acts 14. If you guys remember uh, a couple months ago, back in December, Paul and Barnabas had just completed their their first missionary journey where they were sent out by the church of Antioch and they went out to a, a bunch of areas kind of up towards where modern day Turkey is and they preached the gospel to largely areas that were inhabited by Gentiles or non-Jewish people and tons of people got saved. They, they planted a whole bunch of largely Gentile churches, all right? And they come back to the church and they give testimonies of all God did through them and the church is encouraged. And that's where we're gonna pick it up in Acts 15. So let me pray one more time and then we'll start going through this verse by verse. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, thank you so much again for your word. Lord, um, just even as I was going through this, I was blessed again to be reminded that my salvation is in you, in you alone. It was received through faith in Jesus, uh, belief in my need for him to save me from my sin and what he did so I could be saved on that cross. By your grace, it was your favor that you chose to show this towards me and my brothers and sisters, this forgiveness. I could never have done anything to make myself right with you. I still can't do anything to make myself any more right with you. It's all because of what you did for me. And it's so easy to even unconsciously sometimes get in that frame of mind of I'm not doing well and therefore you're not happy with me even though that's not what your word tells me. And Lord, we don't want to be in that place. We don't want to unnecessarily weigh ourselves down with expectations that you haven't put on us. And we most certainly don't want to put those on our brothers and sisters as well. So Lord, speak to us through this. May it be an encouragement to us if there are people that are, in a sense, weighed down by things that you've never said or asked them. I pray you'd free them from those false expectations today so they can walk here with your yoke on them, not some yoke that they've put on themselves or someone else has. In Jesus' name, amen. So verse 1 says, but some men, this is after they're telling everyone about all these Gentiles being saved, Paul and Barnabas, it says, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So under the law, if you guys are familiar with the Old Testament, one of the things that God told the Jewish people they were to do 
was to be circumcised, okay? And the idea here is these men from Judea, they're Jewish Christians. They're, they're people of Jewish descent that have come to believe that Jesus was in fact the Messiah. He was who he said he was after the fact, after his death and resurrection. And them coming from Judea would have carried a lot of weight. Most likely they were from Jerusalem, but that would have carried a lot of weight with these believers in Antioch because that was considered kind of the mothership, the mother church. It's where all the main leadership was, the apostles. So these guys coming from there would have been like, I mean, they would have been like, okay, well, it's important what they have to say to us. We should listen to them. And these men, they're coming down from Antioch in direct response to hearing about Paul and Barnabas sharing these testimonies of all these Gentiles getting saved because what they did on their mission trip was they preached salvation comes by God's grace through faith and faith in Jesus alone. That's it. You can't save yourself. You can't, no matter how hard you try to do good things, you will never be good enough. It's only through the blood of Jesus. It's only through that sacrifice he made for you that you can be forgiven of your sin. You can be made right with God and this is a gift for anyone and everyone that is willing to receive it, that is willing to believe and place all of their trust and faith in Jesus Christ. That's that's what they were preaching, all right? And um, Paul, like, just if you guys, just as an example, if you guys don't remember, when Paul was preaching to the people in the Antioch up in the Turkey area uh, in Pisidia in Acts thirteen thirty-eight through 39, this is what he said. He said, brothers, listen. We are here to proclaim that through this man, Jesus, there is forgiveness of your sins. Everyone who believes in him is made right in God's sight. Something the law of Moses could never do. Basically, preaching what I just said. You can only be made right through faith in Jesus. You can't do anything according to the law. You can't do enough good things to live a perfect life and make yourself right with God. And these Jewish believers, often called Judaizers, you might have heard that before, they disagreed. In their self-righteousness or them thinking, at least in part, that there was something that they were doing that was making them right or adding to their right standing before God, making them appear more holy in God's eyes. They could not accept that a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, could be equal with them in God's eyes without first following their Jewish customs or the law. Basically, in essence, what they were saying is like, you can't be a true Christian. You can't be a true follower of Christ unless you first become a Jew and then you believe in Jesus Christ. So it was Jesus plus something else. That's what they were preaching, which on a side note, this whole idea of circumcision, if you guys are familiar, I don't have time to go to it now, but a reference if you want to write it down. Genesis 17, 9 through 14 tells you the whole reason for circumcision, basically the reason God gave the Jewish people for it. It was never to make them right with God. The whole idea of circumcision was to remind them of the covenant that God had made with them, of the promise, because like us, they would have a tendency to forget God's promises in their life. And apparently circumcision cut it for... Uh, being something that would be a, a visible reminder to them all the time. Some of you guys are sharp this morning. So uh, <laughs> I got to get my corny pa- punny pastor jokes in, all right? But no, it was, they had a complete misunderstanding of the whole purpose of it, even though God told them that this is just a reminder. 
So you guys don't forget that I'm for you and I'm not against you. And all these promises I made to you, as long as you obey me and you follow me, that you're going to have blessing in your life. It was just a reminder. It wasn't in itself something to make them right with God. So they misunderstood that. And at the, But at the hearing of what happened with Paul and Barnabas on their mission trip, these Jewish believers feel compelled to come down to Antioch to correct them. And I, I would say that these guys probably are sincere in their beliefs. They probably think that what they're saying is good. It's for the betterment of these Gentiles. That, hey, you know, we're, these things lead to blessing in your life. They're good things according to the law, so you guys should do these things. But the, re, the fact of the matter is they were sincerely wrong. This is what Jesus came to save people from. This is what he was telling them. You can't save yourself. You need me to do it for you. And so they were sincerely wrong in what they believed. And Paul and Barnabas are going to react accordingly. It says in verse 2, And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, dissension, kind of the idea of being like a strong disagreement that leads to discord and maybe even dividing over this truth. Like, no, we can't agree to disagree on this. All right? says, so after no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Now, I want to point out first that this question they're debating was not what you've probably heard, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, what we call a secondary issue or a non-essential doctrine of God's word, okay? Essential doctrines are those truths found in God's word that distinguish Christians from non-Christians, or they're basically things that have to be believed in order for you to be truly saved and a follower of Jesus Christ, okay? Let me give you some examples of those. Uh, the doctrine that Jesus, when he lived on this earth, was fully God and fully man. That's an essential doctrine, all right? He couldn't have saved us if he wasn't either of those, okay? That Jesus was, in fact, sinless. He had to be to be the perfect sacrifice, all right? That he died on a cross in the place of sinners to secure salvation for all who believe. That's essential doctrine of our faith. That he was raised again to life. That showed that he had truly conquered death. That it had no power over him because he was sinless. Proved who he was. That's an essential thing. The doctrine of the Holy Trinity. That there's one God that exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen? That's an essential doctrine of our faith. That salvation is obtained, what, what they're basically debating here, that salvation is obtained only by God's grace through faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ. Amen? Those are essential doctrines. There's no room to agree to disagree. Those are clear-cutly what God's word teaches. Now, non-essential doctrines, well, I, I don't want to say that they're not important because they're in God's word. So they're obviously important. And I do believe understanding God's word even what we would consider non-essential has blessing attached to it. That's why we want to strive to understand God's word correctly, all right? Um, but non-essential doctrines are not considered necessary for one to be saved or necessary to know who God is. There's sometimes being room for interpretation in God's word is either it's not dogmatically prescriptive about some things, such as like style of worship music. It doesn't go to the extent of describing exactly what that looks like. Instead, it gives us like um, like uh, principles to follow. Like Jesus says, we're to worship in spirit and in truth. Well, the purpose of the Holy Spirit is always to point you to God. So it should be God glorifying 
and it should be scripturally accurate. Those are the two guidelines we're given. They're principles. But like as far as what instruments to use, whether to sing loud or not, we're not, we're not given those. So if you try to put those on, some, uh, on somebody, those are man-created ordinances. Okay? So we, you know, there's room to disagree or, or have different opinions depending on styles and what people prefer regarding that. There's also room for differing opinions on exactly what's being said in some parts of Scripture. Like, you know, some big hot topics that people, you know, have debated about for years are like the gifts of the Holy Spirit or end time stuff, eschatology. Again, I have like firm beliefs in the doctrines and theologies that I believe, but I don't divide over those things with people because we're, as long as we're unified in the essential stuff, it's like, well, you're my brother and sister in Christ. I do believe that there's a blessing believing these things the way that I see scripture teaching them. But having said that, I'm not divided over them. Okay, so, but these Jewish believers said you couldn't be saved without being circumcised. So that's a key truth of salvation that they're debating on how one is made right with God. So it wasn't a principle where there was room for interpretation or agree to disagree. It was a foundational belief of Christianity and it had to be resolved. Okay, and for us, it's a great example of how sometimes there are essential fundamental principles of faith in god's word that we need to stand our ground on and stand firm in and never um like basically compromise those beliefs even if it means you know debating these things to the point of dividing over them saying no you are wrong this is what god's word says and it's right all right salvation by god's grace through faith alone being one of those as paul clearly tells us in ephesians 2 8 through 9 among other places but he tells us there god saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this it is a gift from god salvation is not a reward for good things we have done so none of us can boast about there's nothing you did it's by god's grace or his undeserved, unmerited, unearned favor that he has chosen to show you because he loves you. That's why he saved you. It's received as a gift. If you're truly giving a gift to someone, the only thing they can do is choose to receive it or deny it, right? They didn't do anything to earn it if it truly was a gift. So that's what Paul tells us. And I've had instances where I'm talking with, um, you know, uh, maybe like Mormon believers, all right? And maybe you guys have heard this before. You've had the same experience where they would say that, oh, I'm the same as you. I'm a Christian. And what one of the truths that I know that they believe that is not the same is the very thing that they're arguing here because they believe that it's Jesus and works that saves them. All right. And so what I'm quick to do instead of just, you know, arguing or whatever, I don't want to do that. I want to go to God's word because I know God's word doesn't return void. I know that my opinion doesn't mean anything, but my God's word doesn't turn void. So at least if I can show them what God's word says, I can pray that God will use that to reveal the deception they believed and show them the truth. But I'll go to those sections that teach where it's not works, just like the one I just read. It's by faith and faith alone. And when they try to say we believe the same thing, I said, no, we don't. You believe something that I that God's word clearly tells us is not possible. You cannot do anything to make yourself right with God. You have to totally receive and believe in Jesus has done it for you and in his work that he's done for you. And that's the way we should on these essential things. We should stand firm in these things. So 
the church understanding the magnitude of what was being debated here, they send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem to basically discuss this matter with the church leadership, the highest church leadership, and kind of figure it out. You know, we need to we need to nip this in the butt. We need to like figure out exactly what what's going on here. You know, what what's the truth here? So it says in verse three, so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. Now, this is pretty cool because as they're going, as they're heading to Jerusalem, they're passing through these other towns. They're coming into contact with other believers. And what do they do? They go and they keep sharing the testimonies of what God did on their mission trip. Basically, all these Gentiles that were being saved, all these churches that were being planted. And what does it say the result of that was? It brought great joy. As they're just talking, man, God's so awesome. Man, we were telling people about Jesus. We were telling them how they could be forgiven of their sin. All they have to do is understand that they're sinners. They need to repent and turn to him. And he paid the price for them on the cross. As they're sharing that good news, people are just filled with joy. They're filled with joy as they're telling people. And that joy is contagious. People are filled with joy as they're sharing the gospel. And and that's a great word for us. Because we can either be Christians that bring joy wherever we go. Or we can be Christians that bring joy whenever we go. Okay? You see like two different like like examples here, right? Because here comes these legalists. And they're preaching like, oh... Well, that's good you believe in Jesus, but I see this wrong in your life. This is wrong in your life. You need to do that. You need to do this. Then you'll really be a Christian. Then you'll be a mature Christian. They're, they're preaching legalism. And what did it lead to? It lead to it led to discord and conflict, right? And then on the flip side, you have Paul and Barnabas, and they're just preaching the good news. They're just sharing with everyone like about like the gospel and like how God's been using it in their lives and how they're thankful for it and, and they're just amazed at seeing God use it to save people and it brings joy in people's lives. Amen? And that's a great word for us because, again, there's absolutely no bad news found in the good news of Jesus Christ. And when you are focused on the gospel in your life, when that is when you're what I call cross-eyed, okay? You're just thankful to be saved. You're, you're, that's your mission, like your, your goal with your kids, with your spouse, with your coworkers, is just opportunities to show God's love to them so you can tell them about Jesus. You will be filled with joy and that joy will be contagious to other people in this world that is so lacking joy right now. And I can tell you, being a contagious Christian is a lot better than some of the other things going around this world that are really contagious right now, Okay. guys are tough man you're starting to wake up a little i thought that was good now on the flip side on the flip side this is important we we can be like these jewish believers here if we aren't careful as well and hopefully not to the extent of sharing heretical teachings about salvation because i like to think we're a very doctrinal we're we're based in the root we're rooted in the word in this church so we know our our fundamental essential doctrine so like hopefully not to that extent but here's the thing we can also and in, in, in without even knowing it a lot of the time in act self-righteous like them and somehow thinking that we're better christians even though that's not theologically possible we understand that right we understand that theologically 
you were as bad as you could ever be apart from Jesus. And through your faith in Jesus, you've been made as good as you could ever be in God's eyes, right? Now, we are works in progress, a work that in Philippians, Jesus, uh, the Lord's promise, he's going to finish. When you were with him, you will be perfect, okay? Until that point, you're a work in progress. Practically, we're all works in progress. But positionally, God always sees, already sees you. That's why he has a relationship with you. Robed in the righteousness of Christ. That's how the Bible puts it. Like he sees Jesus when he sees you because Jesus took your sin and he gave you his righteousness. And so you couldn't be any more right in God's eyes, right? So it's an error for us to think that somehow, and like I said, sometimes we do this subconsciously. It's an error for us to think that somehow that person's not doing things the way I would. Or that person isn't living as a Christian should that person doesn't believe the same theology I should and somehow mistakenly thinking that because they're not like you, you're better than them in God's eyes. That, yeah, or the opposite. Either way, that's a mistake. That's not theologically possible. And so we got to be careful of doing that, all right? Um, and what it leads to, what it can lead to, not all of us are guilty of this, but I would say all of us at some point in our lives can be guilty of this, Okay. We can be critical of those other people we're looking at that aren't doing things the way we think they should be done, even though God's word doesn't prescribe that they should be done that way. It's not dogmatically prescriptive. It's just kind of something that we're prone to or we think should be done a certain way. But God doesn't say that. and But we look down on them because they're not doing it the way we think it should be done. Or they're not acting the way we think they should as a Christian, even though our actions in no way affect our right standing with God. Or, again, they don't believe the same non-essential views as us, even though unity is very possible without uniformity on those non-essential beliefs. Okay? And as a result, dissension and debate tend to follow us wherever we go. We're just... How many people have known people like that? Like, it's just always... Don't call anyone out. <laughs> but it seems like like they just have to always start an argument. Or they can't just like, it, it, there's a lack of joy. Like you see in Paul and Barnabas. It's just like always coming and there's just heaviness that comes with them. All right? I don't know what, about you, but I don't want to be that, that person, right? We don't want to be that way. We're to be filled with the joy of the Lord. And that's what's contagious to people. People don't want that that debate and that dissension. There's enough of that out in that world, right? So let me give you an example in scripture. Because the disciples, I'm not trying to discourage you in that we struggle with this. We want to be aware of it so we don't make these mistakes. And the disciples struggle it just like we do, okay? Because they're just like us. They're people. So in Matthew 26, 6 through 13, it's a famous or it's a passage you probably read before, but it says there in verse six, meanwhile, Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy. And while he was eating, a woman came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume and poured it over his head. And the disciples were indignant or they were angry when they saw this. What a waste, they said. It could have been sold for a high price and The money given to the poor. Now watch this. Watch Jesus' response. But Jesus, aware of this, replied, Why criticize? Or why be critical 
of this woman for doing such a good thing to me. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. She has poured this perfume on me to prepare my body for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deeds will be remembered in disgust. You see, Jesus' disciples there had in their mind a better way to serve the Lord. Oh, I wouldn't do that. There's a much better thing you could have done, a much better way you could have worshipped him. You could have taken that and sold the money and and given it to the poor. And it brought them to this place of a self-righteous attitude of like, you're not, you're not, you're not a legit Christian. You're not as good as we are because you're not doing this. They, They were looking down upon her, but that was just their preference. And it didn't by any means make it wrong what this woman did. Just because somebody serves Jesus differently than I would or worships him differently than I would does not automatically make them wrong in their actions unless for some reason they're blatantly violating scripture. But that's not what was happening here. It was a preference thing. But sometimes we can treat people as if they're wrong in our criticalness of them, even though we have no biblical basis for it. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be somebody that's guilty of casting stones at other believers like these disciples were here, when in fact, Jesus is actually blessed and pleased by what they're doing. Amen? That's what's happening here, all right? It actually pleased the Lord, the very thing that they were criticizing and being critical of. We need to work hard not to look at other people and what they're doing wrong and point that out to them. We need to look really hard or work really hard at keeping the main thing the main thing in our lives. Because when the gospel is the center of your thoughts, the things you say, the actions you take will reflect that. And we will view each other correctly as God sees us through faith in his son, which is nobody's better than anyone else. Because through faith in Jesus, we've all been made perfect in his eyes. And that any work we do or don't do doesn't take away or add to that. Amen? We will see people as God sees people. And that's the goal. And we won't be divided and argue about secondary, non-essential issues. That it's absolutely good and okay to discuss and reason together. I'm not saying that. But when we're united in the main thing, again, we can agree to disagree on those things that aren't essential to our faith. In who God is and sharing the gospel. Amen? Amen. Goes on in verse 4 and it says, And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church. And the apostles and the elders and they declared all that God had done with them. Or so they arrive in Jerusalem. They do the same thing they did when they came home to their church in Antioch. They're sharing their testimonies of what God did. They're making it obvious that it's God that's saving these Gentiles. We're not making this up. Okay, this is a God thing. This is what he's doing because people can argue with theology, but it's hard pressed to argue with testimony. All right. So they're sharing their testimonies. In verse five, it says, but some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it's necessary to circumcise them and, and, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Basically, the way the Jewish people would have thought is circumcision was kind of the initiation into being a Jew. And then following the law was what kept you good with God. So that's basically, they're saying the same thing they said before. It's not enough that they believe in Jesus. They got to do these things to be right. 
then they can believe in Jesus. And it would appear, according to verse 5, some of these uh, people that are doing this were of the religious leaders called the Pharisees. If you guys are familiar with them, they were one of the main religious Jewish religious leaders back in the day. And what's interesting about that, when you're going through the Gospels, they're the ones that were probably the hardest on Jesus or had the biggest problems. They were always confronting him and what he was doing and trying to trick him into saying something that was wrong, never being successful, never leading him into sin. They were the ones that were really behind him being falsely accused and being tried and encouraging him to be crucified. But the Pharisees also were those who embraced the spiritual side of things, like the miraculous Whereas the Sadducees, kind of the other main religious leaders, they didn't believe in that stuff. So the Pharisees would have been open to the idea of resurrection. They believed in that. And so it would appear that some of them had witnessed Jesus's resurrection or heard about it secondhand. And that was enough for them to believe in him. Now, they also held the law in high regard and prided themselves. The Pharisees were almost arrogant about how worthy they were of god's righteousness because they followed the law better than anyone else and it's obvious here that even if they did acknowledge jesus as the messiah they did not fully believe that faith or salvation came through faith and faith alone they believed that they still had to do something in their own power which we should make clear they didn't fully receive jesus and believe in him as their lord and savior then they would have still had to come to that point of trusting in him fully and not themselves in their own righteous acts to truly believe and receive him as their Lord. And Paul, who once was a Pharisee, he understood this. He already came to that conclusion that Jesus is not just a way to be saved. Jesus himself is your salvation. He preaches this to some other Judaizers Judaizers in Galatians 2.16 when he says, yet we know that a person is made right with God By faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ. Not because we have obeyed the law for no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. God giving his people the law, not with the intent to save them through it but rather to show them that there was no way they could follow it perfectly so that they would be ready to receive the Savior when he came, knowing that they needed someone to save them. Paul also going on in Galatians 3, 23 through 28 to explain this to these Judaizers. He says in verse 23, now before faith came or before Jesus came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be Revealed. That's very much what it feels like when you're trying to be a good person in life. How many of you guys can relate to that before you were saved? You try to do good things and it never is enough. You're just, con- you're never good enough. You never appear good enough in others' eyes. You never feel good enough in your own eyes. And the reality is, even before God comes into your life, your good deeds are rooted in wrong actions because the whole purpose you're doing it is trying to make yourself feel better about yourself. It's selfish. Yeah, well, then that, and some of us are just wretched, okay? Like Dylan, and no, I mean, I can relate to that. I was a heathen before I was saved in college. I lived for myself. I'm not going to joke and act like I lived for anyone else. I was selfish and just all about fulfilling my needs and desires. So, I mean, I'm we're evil to the core until God comes in and changes us from the inside out, okay? 
And so Paul's telling him that. He says in verse 24, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you as were baptized in the Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Doesn't matter if you're a Jew or Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Think of the law. And maybe you've heard this before. It's kind of like a mirror. You ever done like something outside where it got you really filthy. And you come in to look in the mirror to see how filthy you are. So you can clean yourself off. Nobody's ever done that. Okay. You just like scrub and just oh so i've done that okay we actually have this shrub in our yard that it has to be trimmed a couple times a year and it's pretty tall it's kind of like a privacy shrub and for whatever reason the leaves on it stick are sticky probably just time of the year there's a sap in it i don't know but it just covers me from head to toe in these leaves and so i always got to come in i got to look in the mirror and I got to clean, try to clean myself off, pick these things off, because no matter how hard I brush, they don't come off. And still, even with that, no matter how hard I try, I still have leaves all over the place. And I have to ultimately take a shower and just scrub myself totally clean before I can get all of that dirt and filth off. All right. Now, that mirror showed me how dirty I was, but it didn't help me clean myself at all. All right. And much the same, that's what the law does. The law in the Old Testament shows showed them and it shows us that no matter how hard you try, you cannot get rid of the filth in your life. That you are inherently evil, like bad. We're born with that nature. That's what the Bible tells us. And there's nothing we can do to help ourselves. We truly are on a path to destruction those of us that are honest, see us all that in our lives. The choices we were making were not only bad. Maybe we, we didn't think they were bad when we were making them, but they were bad. And that was proven by the bad consequences that came with them. But God intervened. He saved you. The law shows that you need to be saved. And then he sent his son to save you. Okay. Your son's the, the shower, if you will. The one that actually could clean you up that you could never do yourself. The law just showed you how dirty you were. And it says in verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. So the church leadership, they get together. They're considering these impo- this important theological truth. They're like, well, are you saved through faith in Jesus? Or is it salvation through faith and doing things that saves you? And it says, verse 7, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now, if you guys have been tracking with us through the book of Acts, this should sound familiar. Because back in Acts 10, if you guys remember, this is something that God had already dealt on this subject, right? Because uh, Peter here, who was a Jew that got saved and believed in Jesus, still was under the impression that he wasn't to associate with Gentiles who were considered kind of pagans, like dirty. Don't go near them because then they'll get us dirty. We don't want to be by them. And God gives him a vision and he corrects him because God's intent is to save all people. And he sends this Roman soldier, Cornelius, to go for Paul, so Paul or Peter, sorry. So Peter can come and preach the gospel to these Gentiles and they get saved. But before he has to do that, he has to correct Peter. He has to tell him, you're to go, all right? And so it says in verse 8, 
This is what he's talking about. He's reminding them. This is God's already made this clear. It says in verse eight, and God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them that would be Gentiles the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. That would be the Jews. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Paul reminding them basically of or Peter reminding them of whatever really happened in, in God fully receiving the Gentiles when they believed in Jesus Christ. What he's saying is like, remember, guys, when I preached the gospel to these Gentiles, what happened? They believed and the Holy Spirit came upon them in a visible way, just like it did on us. So if God doesn't acknowledge basically if god acknowledges gentiles is acceptable to be his followers who are we not to that's what he's saying and and he and if you remember back god had to teach peter this through a vision back in acts 10 28 peter says when he's in cornelius's home with all these gentiles he says you know it is against our laws for a jewish man to enter a gentile home like this or to associate with you but God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure, unclean. What a good word for us. Because again, we can get in the habit of this, maybe not looking at people as Jewish or Gentile, but we can look at people and we can just see the things they're doing that we don't like. And we could say, there's no hope for that person. That person is impure. That person's wicked. We all came from there, guys. It's the same. Remember, our battle's not against flesh and blood. There is nobody that's unsavable. I was that unsavable person, and God saved me. So remember, we look right past that, and we see them as God does. They need to know Jesus Christ. Amen? They don't call what is clean unclean, all right? Because it can be clean in Jesus. He is the one. And that's 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 this is what these Jewish people are arguing, the very thing that... Peter is saying God's earthy shown them. And he points out in verse 9, kind of the key there is that you're not cleaned by anything you do. They were cleaned through faith in Jesus. That is the only thing that can clean us. That is the only thing that can make us right with God. But Peter pointing out, um, or these Jewish believers, basically, in essence, what they're trying to do is they're saying these people can come to Jesus, but they need to clean themselves up before they come to Jesus. And what Peter is correcting them is saying, oh, no, no, no. The fact that they need to be cleaned up is why they need to come to Jesus right now. Because he's the only way they can be cleaned up, all right? And that's something that we never want to lose sight on, all right? Because we don't want to misrepresent the Lord in that ever. We don't want to somehow give people the impression that somehow they need to change their lives before coming to Jesus because the the reality is they can only be changed by him. Our greatest need is never reformation. It's regeneration. And that's something that only can come through faith in Jesus when the Holy Spirit comes into your life and changes you. Amen? All right? So we don't want to ever get that impression. Here's the thing, and I know you can relate to this, Dylan, because you're a fisher, all right? Jesus said, you're a fisher of men in Matthew 4, 19, all right? How often do you clean the fish before you catch them? <laughs> Doesn't work, all right? All right? You, you, what we do is we're casting and we're trying to hook, hook people and get them in the boat of salvation. The Lord will start the cleaning process then. Amen. All right. That's our focus. Now it says in verse 10. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we, that being the Jews, will be saved 
through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they, the Gentiles, will. So Peter finishes his very sound theological response to this debate that's going on by giving them a common sense question because he's saying that if you guys are being realistic with yourselves and you're looking at your life and you're looking at our history, he's like, when have we been ever able to follow this law? If you go back all the way when it was first given to us, our whole entire history, all we've done is broke it. And all you've ever done in your life is broke it, if you're being honest. So if I can't even follow it, how can we expect anyone else to follow it? Amen? And as such, he concludes that we're no different than these Gentiles. We're arguing about these Gentiles. They can only be saved through faith in Jesus. We can only be saved through faith in Jesus. It's not by anything else that we could ever do. Family, we need to be so careful of putting requirements on people that God never asks of them. It is something that I've been guilty of. And I think if we're being honest, we've probably all been guilty of at some point. Like again, sometimes subconsciously. And I don't think it's always with wrong motives. I think honestly, a lot of people, when we do this, what these guys are kind of doing, again, not maybe like heretical, like you can't be saved unless you, you do things, but just kind of, you know, because of our opinions, because of our preferences, we, we look at people and say, you need to do this, you need to do that, or you don't believe this. And, and we start thinking that we're somehow better. Again, it's wrong, but like we do that. I think we can have good intentions because we're thinking in our minds like, okay, I'm giving somebody the key to right living by telling them to do this. And, you know, blessing comes with righteousness. So I want good things for them. That's why I want them to be this way, okay? I bet the religion, these religious people here probably thought that. They probably thought, man, look at all these crazy Gentiles getting saved. I mean, they're, they've got all types of crazy pagan stuff in their lives. Dude, we got to give them some structure so they don't keep hurting themselves, all right? So we're going to give them the law, and you got to follow this, and then you'll be good. But maybe you guys have learned what I've learned in my 43 years of living on this earth, and that is law leads to rebellion. How many of you guys like being told what to do? <laughs> How many of you guys have kids that like being told what to do? <laughs> Isn't our tendency, as soon as we're told not to do something, to want to do that very thing? Let me tell you a little story with my wife. Not uncovering her, because I can relate to this. We had to go to like uh, the immigration office um, or down in downtown Portland uh, recently, because she's in the middle of getting like dual citizenship with the UK. Long story with that. But all I have to say is, we had to go down there. And we're waiting in this huge line, like shoulder to shoulder to people outside. And as soon as you get in the building, they've got those little six-foot spaces. Stand right here. Not over here, not over here. Right, right here. And my wife's just really honest. It drives her absolutely crazy. Like that they're saying, you got to stand right here. To the point where she just stands a little bit off of it. Because it's kind of like the same thing. You see the speed limit and it's 45, you go 46 or 47. Some of you go a lot more. But having said that, just a little bit more. It's okay. <laughs> that's our tendency, right? So that's the thing. We think we're doing good by like putting these yokes on people that God isn't asking for them. And maybe even it, maybe even it's biblically sound things like do this, do that. Don't watch that movie. It's bad. Or don't do this. But the thing is, that's often not helpful because it, it, it incites that nature to do the very opposite of what you're being told. 
And if it's something that, you know, like in a sense we're, we're conveying, even maybe not meaning to do it, but we're conveying that this is what makes you right before God, this is what makes you a good Christian, then what that often leaves people feeling is discouraged and like weighed down because they think that God's not pleased with them because of, you know, whatever bar that they're not meeting, which couldn't be further from the truth, right? And none of us need help feeling that way because we all feel that way at times. That is something our flesh makes us feel and something the enemy wants us to feel because he knows that if we're discouraged and we feel we're not good enough from God, we're going to go the opposite of going towards God, which is the best place we can be. But here's the other thing I've learned. Law leads to rebellion, but love leads to relationship. When you guys have a loving relationship with somebody and you know that they care about you, they want the best for you, don't you just want to be with them all the time? And doesn't what coming what, what comes with caring knowing somebody cares about you is caring about them and caring about their wants and their desires and, and wanting to do those things, wanting to listen, wanting to make them happy. It's not something you have to will yourself to do. It's something you just want to do, right? And Paul tells us that's the same way that leads to right living with God. He tells us in Romans 2, 4, he says, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? What Paul's saying there is like, when you see the love of God, when you experience the love of God, when you experience his forgiveness, when you experience his mercy, despite you not deserving any of it, doesn't that make you want to follow him? Doesn't that make you want to listen to everything he tells you? Because obviously he's got your best interests in mind. That's the key. It's not to try to yoke people. It's to love them in God's name. It's to tell them about God's love. If you're correcting sin in their life, it's not to say, this is bad, don't do that. It's to take the time to lovingly explain what exactly is wrong according to God's word and what it'll lead to in their lives that will harm them. Because that's showing you care. That's showing you love. That's what Jesus would do. Amen? And that's something we can all grow in. And we can be on guard against. Again, it breaks my heart because I see a lot of this misrepresentation of Jesus, not in our church, but in the world as a whole. I see people standing there in public settings, pastors even, that are saying, oh, if you were a real Christian, you would do this. If you really wanted to love others, you would do this. And in the very, they don't know this. I think they're meaning well by it. But it's like, holy cow, man, do you even understand justification by faith? Because what you just said was that you are better than other Christians because you're doing something. And that is not what God says. And we don't want to misrepresent him ever in thinking that. Amen. And we don't want to trick people into believing that and putting some unnecessary yoke on them that God hasn't. Amen. All right. Well, as the worship team comes up here, we're going to have a response time. And here's two things I just want to leave you guys with. All right. Maybe you're somebody here that you have not believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You have not placed your faith in him to save you from your sin. And in a sense, 
you can relate to this being like like putting a burden on yourself of trying to be good, trying to do enough good things, and no matter what you do, you just don't feel good enough ever. It's like this endless cycle of where you're never satisfied or you never feel like people are satisfied with you and they're always dishappy or you're dishappy. And the reality is that's because you're trying to do something that you can never do on your own, that you were never meant to do on your own. You'll never be able to get where you're trying to get without God's help. Maybe you're a Christian here today that theologically you would agree with everything I've taught today from God's word. You would say, I I get that. I'm saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus. It's not by anything I do. But yet you're having problems living that in your life. See, the key to God's word is we don't want to just believe it in our head knowledge. We want to learn to live it and experience the blessing that comes through living it. And we don't want to fool ourselves just because we agree with it that we're actually living it. And what I'm trying to get at here is that you've either allowed somebody else or you've put a yoke on yourself and you're still trying to earn your way to God being pleased with you. And what I would remind you today is that he is as pleased with you as he could ever be. And you can stop basing your right standing with God based off anything you've done right or anything you've done wrong. Yes, I get that you want to live rightly. We should all want to live rightly if we're truly saved because we've got the Holy Spirit in us. And it convicts us when we do wrong because God doesn't want us to hurt ourselves anymore. That's a good feeling. And God gives us the Holy Spirit to help us live according to his word. But that has no basis on your right standing with God what you've done or what you haven't done or what you're doing right or what you're not doing right. God saved you. You're his child. Through your faith in Jesus, you couldn't ever be any more right with him. And so you don't have to weigh yourself down with that yoke that God never, ever asked you to. Amen? And if we're not feeling that way today, rest assured the enemy will try to get you to feel that way tomorrow or the next day. Because he wants you to be in that place of being discouraged and feeling distant from God. When really the place we need to be is just clinging to God for help the whole time. Amen. We've got sin in our lives. We repent of it. We go to God. That simple. You didn't shock him. You didn't surprise him. He knew what you did when he saved you. He knew what you were going to do even when he saved you. You're never surprising him. It's the safest place you could ever go into the loving arms of your father. And that's where we belong. And what Jesus would tell either one of you, if you're in either one of those situations, what he would say to you, Matthew 11, 28 through 30, he says, come to me. That's the key. That's where you go. If you're in either one of those situations, you come to me. All of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Don't put a yoke upon yourself. Take Jesus's by coming to him. Let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. Don't try to teach yourself. Don't try to figure it out yourself. Don't try to do it yourself. Go to Jesus. He'll help you live in that freedom. He's won you. For my yoke is easy to bear and the burden I give you is light. Christian, that's what you should be feeling today. That's God's will for you. That's God's will for me. It's a light and easy yoke. Doesn't mean you don't go through difficult things. 
But when you go through them with Jesus, it's way lighter and easier than when you try to go through it and bear it yourself. So we're going to have a time where we're going to have our prayer team up here. And I encourage you, if you're somebody that can relate to that, you feel weighed down, whether it's you weighing yourself down, you letting other people weigh you down. Maybe you're somebody that needs to believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Come up and get prayer. Don't keep bearing that by yourself. Come let your brothers and sisters help you bear that with the Lord. And for the rest of us, what we're going to do is there's communion elements back there. Some of you grabbed them on the way in. During this last song or songs of response, as you come before the Lord and be honest with him, make sure you're in that right spot of just being thankful for the good news, thankful for being saved, thankful that everything that needed to be done was done at that cross. That's when we're doing communion, we're doing this in remembrance of what Jesus did for us, right? That's what he said. You're remembering that that punishment for sin was great as demonstrated by what he took upon his body. Everything he went through, that bread symbolizes that. The blood, that juice symbolizes this blood that was spilled, that atoned. It paid the price in full that was required for your sins. We're celebrating that when we take it. We're remembering it because we so often forget it so that you can leave here in that joy, that same joy Paul and Barnabas had and that spread to other people, that joy of knowing what Jesus, confidently knowing what Jesus has already done for you. Amen? Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, thank you so much, Lord, for everything you've done for us. Thank you for the freedom you've given us. Thank you that we don't have to sit here and question our salvation today, that we can 100% know that we are saved through faith in you, Lord. And if there's anyone here today that hasn't made that declaration, that hasn't taken that step toward you, may today be the day of salvation for them, knowing that they don't know what tomorrow holds. We only get this chance to make this choice in this life. And may today be the day they make that choice. They stop trying in their own power. They stop weighing themselves down, putting requirements on themselves that they can never keep, they can never fulfill. And they look to you, the one that has done everything that needs to be done for them to be forgiven and made right with God where they can truly experience the peace that comes through peace with God that can only be given as a gift through faith in you, Jesus. For the rest of us, may we be living in that peace. May we not be living as we did before you saved us with putting yokes on ourselves that aren't of you, Lord, that you're not asking us to living in the freedom that we have as your children, Lord. Lord, as we take these communion elements during this time, I pray that it would be it would be in remembrance. It would help produce this joy and thankfulness in us, Lord, remembering that the work was finished at that cross and we can rejoice in it being done. In Jesus' name, amen.